Bullshit. The No BS Marketing Show is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audible.com slash no BS. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. It's the No BS Marketing Show. I'm your host, Dave Mastovich. Our guest today is Mike Malatesta. Hi, Dave. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Fantastic. And Mike is a CEO, investor, writer, and innovator out of Milwaukee. In 1992, Mike co-founded Advanced Waste. Starting at zero, Mike and his team completed 14 acquisitions and grew annual sales to $45 million while operating in five states with 150 employees. Now that he's sold Advanced Waste, he's CEO of JMMR Holdings. Mike and I met through a workshop that I was doing for him and some other CEOs in Milwaukee, and we've had the chance to stay in touch. And I thought he'd be a great guest for you loyal no BSers. Mike, welcome to the show officially. I'm ple- pleasure to be here. Mike, just talk a little bit about that career path of how you start at zero and you go through all these acquisitions. You grow with a, over 100 employees, 150 at the end. Talk about your career path and your journey. Okay, sure. Yeah, so I started in the waste business in, right out of college. In fact, I had started in college driving a garbage truck in the summertime. And once I got a hold of that garbage truck, I just kind of fell in love with the industry. And the company I was working for was a family-run business, didn't really have a spot for me. So, But they gave me some good advice. The owner told me to you know, stay in school, graduate, and try to get a job with one of the big guys. So I uh, applied to the big guys uh, and got a job from one of them as a management trainee right out of college. And that's how I got my start. The short story with them is I went around to five different locations in five years and I was willing to move. I was willing to take any job that they offered me. And uh, after five years, uh, I made my way out to Milwaukee and then my opportunity with them ended. They let me go. So here I was, uh, didn't know many people, had just been out here with my wife for a little over a year and I didn't have a job. So I started to look around uh, for a job, which I did and got one and I hated it. Just I was there a month and I just couldn't stand it. And during that month, it kind of, this thing that really started when I was four years old, sitting on the, sitting on the corner of, of my street, watching these trucks come back and forth because there was a construction yard across the street. I always wanted my own trucks. And so now that I was out of a job, hated this new job I was in, I said, you know, this, this, is, this is maybe a sign, maybe I should try to start a company. And so I did. Uh, with a guy that I had worked with and uh, we assembled another team of investors, got a bank to give us an SBA loan and and we just went to work. Um, and over the over the, the course of 22 years, it got, got myself somehow surrounded by really great people, exposed to good opportunities uh, as well as a ton of challenges and then just worked, worked our butts off through them and fortunately, uh, uh, grew a, a very successful company. Talk about going through the 14 acquisitions. Yeah, so we had a, uh, we didn't know anything about acquisitions when we started, but after a few years, uh, we had an opportunity to buy a division of a company. And my partner, uh, Larry, had the connection there. 
And we ended up buying this, this company for $225,000. This was in 1995. And that was our kind of first taste of what an acquisition was like. And about 1998, we kindly, we, we figured out kind of how to build a business model out of what we were doing. Uh, and once we had a business model, then we wanted to grow geographically. And so we established a, basically a 50-50 strategy, 50% organic growth, 50% acquisition growth. So that's what got us started on the acquisition path. And then it was just knocking on doors, connecting with people. You know, do, Are you looking for um, an opportunity to do something else with your life or vice versa? People would come to us and say, I am looking for an opportunity to do something else. And um, so we would target certain companies, certain geographies, and then just go after it while we were building our internal sales as well. A couple of things that are important to our listeners and the loyal no BSers. One is you uh, started out in the management training and you were willing to take different positions. So in those five years, you got a breadth and depth of experience because you moved and had to learn different regions, different organizations, different parts, even though you're in the same company, it's a whole different culture within each of those. So that's the first thing you were willing to take chances. You were willing yeah. to move and you gained a lot of skill and training and, and management and leadership skills. Then when you lose the job, you decided to do something. You, you took it as it sounds like you took it as while well, scary and frightening and frustrating. You took it as an opportunity, which I think is one of the things that I noticed entrepreneurs do. You took that as an opportunity and you were able to then leap into something that could help you live something you dreamed about or set as goals younger. And then you met, you just mentioned that you didn't know much about acquisitions, proving you're, you're humble and vulnerable, admitting that you didn't know about acquisitions and you learned along the way. What's interesting to me is as you began to make those acquisitions, what were the key indicators that you would use when you chose that one? You mentioned geographic as part of it, but what else did you do when you were looking at it? And how often did you look at one and decide, ah, this isn't the one for me, as opposed to, ah, this is the one we're going to buy? Yeah, well, it's it's funny you ask that because what we were looking to do is uh, establish uh, geographies, geographic areas that were roughly 150 miles from one another, where we could have a waste recycling plant and also have uh, you know trucks for picking up the waste and 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 where we could add other services. So that was kind of our acquisition strategy. And then if we had something close to where we were um, that we felt we could fold into our organization that would be beneficial to us um, or to our customer base, uh, we would go after that as well. But you know, look at thinking about. No one ever asked me that question before, so that's a good one, Dave. But thinking about it, I'd say. There was probably not very many that I saw uh, that I said, eh, it's not going to work because at that time, I'm a little smarter now, not much, but at that time, I kind of figured I could fix anything. So give, you know, I'll, I'll take whatever there is we can get and then we'll fix it. Now, <clears throat> that strategy didn't always work for us. <laughs> we had, <laughs> we had, uh, we had several that if I had to hit the restart button on, I would not have done. Um, but you know, everyone you do, just like everything in life, there's a lesson to be learned. Sometimes it's a it's a great one. Sometimes it's a painful one. But um, later on, we developed a filter, like a matrix filter that we would put all of our opportunities through. That that was when I had smarter people around me and we had structure and people wanted to actually know that this wasn't a crazy idea. 
that helped quite a bit. So we had an acquisition filter that we developed and we put everything through there. This was in the, in the, in the you know, 15 years on portion of the business. One of the things you touched on there was, I think part of the entrepreneurial spirit or the entrepreneurial code or the DNA of entrepreneurs is early in their career, they fall prey to what you said, because I've lived that myself, where there was a point when I thought I could fix any type of marketing situation and I could fix any type of employee or even earlier in my basketball coaching career, I always thought, oh, I can, I can help. I can make that, that player better. And I can, I can help that player with their attitude. And so to relate it specifically to yours, your quote was that you said, now you would probably, if you had the reset or restart button, you might not. But I actually think that's part of what makes us as entrepreneurs is that early, we just feel like we really, through the force of our will, can use our expertise and improve something. Yeah, it took me 10 years, literally 10 years to realize that um, the, the way I was valuing myself, which is how much I did, as it was, was the wrong way to be valuing myself as a leader. I should be valuing myself on what I've actually accomplished to move the business forward that nobody else can. And it, it, it was I was so lucky that that lesson caught up to me at that period because, and that came to me through a program called Strategic Coach. Uh, by the way, but I was so lucky that came up to me um, at that time because I was ready to literally quit. I was banging my head against the wall. There were no more hours in the day. I was productive. If you looked at what I did, people would say, yeah, that guy gets a lot done. But I was doing things I shouldn't have been doing. Um, and that, that you know, ultimately was was not doing my job. And that's a hard lesson for entrepreneurs sometimes to be told, you're you're wasting your skills by doing what you're doing and you're harming the business as a result but that's how i that's how i felt and it made me change how, talk about the process you mentioned the strategic coach i, I listened to yeah. the, their podcast i think they're good i've yeah. read some of the materials you were actually uh, a member of that then talk about how long that took because i know i've gone through different things in my uh, entrepreneurial journey where that has happened and i still I'm guilty of that productivity thing that you mentioned where sometimes I'm measuring myself too much on, on the number of things you checked off the list. Talk about that evolution, how long it happened, what were some milestones, because I think our listeners would find value in that. Okay. So uh, I was in the program for six years. So from 2003 to 2009, and I took, it took me three years. It took me uh, one and a half because well, I went in with the wrong mind frame, Dave. So I went in with the mind frame that, you know, I can do everything. I don't need help. Even though I was there because I needed help. I don't need help. And I was around all these people who were had already bought into the program. And they're like, yeah, we're doing this. And we're doing this. And I'm thinking in my head, like, yeah, you don't, you know, you probably need that. I don't, you know, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. And uh, the the key that changed everything for me in, in that, and there were a lot of them, but the key was hiring an assistant. I had, I had in my mind, not like I said, that I could do everything. I don't need help with anything. But I also had him because they tell you right off the bat, if you don't have an assistant, if you don't have somebody taking care of all the things that don't need you, you're, you know, you're, it's an, it's an entrepreneurial time system that you're screwing up. So I took me a year and a half to, to buy into that. And when I did, and I found Robin, that changed 
not everything, but so many things for me because now I had a person who could take my skills and her skills. And instead of one plus one is two, it was one plus one is three or three and a half. Most of that coming from her, of course. Um, and then once I had her for that, then the whole anxiety I had about, oh, people are, people don't can't call me directly or they, you know, can't get a hold of me whenever they want. They're going to think I'm some, you know, highfalutin whatever. But the reality was people weren't calling me because they wanted me. They were calling me because I told them, call me if you want something. All they want is what they want. Um, so that once I got once I got uh, teamed up with her, the rest of it, I bought into everything and I just did it. And uh, so that was the transformational part. I love your point about that we sometimes cause that by saying, if you need me, call me, or if you want something, call me, because your point, they want what they want is so true. And when I was on the corporate side, delegation was a strength of mine. And when on the entrepreneurial side, it hasn't been as much of a strength. And uh, so what you're describing there is so true because people don't necessarily, sometimes they do want like when we're talking, talking about creative messaging and somebody's in a crisis situation and needs creative messaging, yes, they actually do want me. They say, I, I want Dave on this because it's this crisis or I need Dave on this messaging for my employees. I'm going to make this major speech. Sometimes they do actually want me, but the vast majority of the time they want a result and they don't care if it's Bonita or Annie or Allie or Mike or Mike, you know, and, and I think that's a great point. Why? Uh, why was it a strength and not a strength now? Uh, the great question. So, so when I was in corporate America, there were a couple of things that I did better than I do at Mass Solutions, and one is selling. Uh, I would have sold anything at those companies that I worked for and not thought twice about the price. I didn't cave on price. I wasn't nervous. Uh, it's it's difficult for me to go out and sell mass solutions. I can tell you what we do and what we do well and how we do it and how we can help you and what you need, but I'm just not as comfortable. There's discomfort in saying this is going to cost $100,000, whereas at other places I'd have said this is going to cost a million dollars and not even blinked. So that's one huh. thing that I've had to really work at. And it's because your name's on the company and I'm not looking at it the right way. I've had to work through that. And my, my, coaches have told me that they said, you have to not personalize it. So that's one thing. The second was on the delegation side. I just, uh, I wanted to have a model that was partially a sound strategy. And the other part was just, I think some head trash that we all have, uh, throughout our lives. But I, I wanted to have a model that I could get the best type of person for the, for the work that was being done for the client. So I didn't want to go mostly full-time people. So I started out, mostly with a number of strong, talented people that I knew and had worked with throughout my career to, to do specific things that they were great at. So in a way, I was delegating well because I was picking the right person, a senior level person. So I had small businesses, companies doing 15, 20 million a year in sales, getting top tier marketing talent because I would pull them in only for that position. So on the one hand, I was delegating pretty well because I was picking the right person, but I wasn't willing to just pull the trigger and hire as many full-time people as I probably should have. So over the past okay. few years, I've become more comfortable at saying, get back to doing what was a natural thing for me. I always 
loved finding people and building teams and hiring people and having employees work for me. But with Mass Solutions, the first five to seven years, we really had mostly relationships with super talented people that we would pull in and we had an employee here or an employee there. So that's uh, this is great. You're turning the tables on me. Make me answer the questions. <laughs> Hope that's okay. <laughs> Absolutely. I love it. I love it. The No BS Marketing Show is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash no BS. Actually, over 200,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. As uh, as Audible continues to grow, they keep telling me, Dave, you need to say 200. You've been saying 180,000. We are with Mike Malatesta, and Mike has an amazing background of having built a company from scratch with a team and led people, ended up buying up another number of other divisions. He told us how he did that and how he made decisions, and he's been very humble and vulnerable talking about it. You grew to where you were in five states with 150 employees. Talk about that yeah. for a minute, because now you're you're having to lead through a big geographic swath plus 150 people what was your span of control like ballpark how many direct reports did you have and how did you how did you go through that type of leadership so too many is the answer i had um depending on the the time it was uh between nine and eleven and that's too many in my view it should be more like five four mm-hmm. the lower the bet the lower the better mm-hmm. um but but you know um i always look at you know, progress, not perfection. Before that, I had however many employees we had, those were my direct reports, you know. So over time, I was able to make progress, but I never got it to where I thought I should be. Now, that being said, the the bigger, so a lot of people say, oh, geez, I don't want all the problems with employees and blah, blah, blah. And for me, especially because of uh, strategic coach and tech and some of the other things that I got myself involved in, the bigger we got, the easier the employee thing got for me. Um, I didn't, I would have loved to have 250 employees because the, um, you know, I was at that point had a good team, right? So the bigger you get, the, the, the better people you need. And that, you know, that, that knowing that acknowledging that helps you search for better people because you need them. So I got great people and I, I structured the company in, in divisions, each run by a general manager, which before they were, there were no divisions. It just all went up, you know, to me or to someone else um, at my level. Um, so they created, they created teams uh, inside of their business units and those teams performed for those, for, for that leader and not for me. And all I had to do was, set the vision, make sure I stayed uh, uh, approachable, connectable when it was appropriate, not when they wanted to jump over somebody else, and cheerlead. Make sure that people knew that we're here doing important work. You're important. Uh, uh, This is where we're going. This is why we're going there. Here's why you, here's why we need you. And, you know, let's get to work and make this happen. One of the questions that I like to ask, and I love hearing the answers from uh, the different entrepreneurs, different leaders, uh, talented creatives, because we have all different types of guests on the show. Let's talk about your why, your reason for being. What was the uh, what was the why? What was the vision 
of the company as you got to mature and you were getting to that growth point, say five years ago or seven years ago or three years ago? What was the why and how did you convey that to the masses? Yeah, so a friend of mine uh, named Mike Natalizio, he owns a, an insurance company here in Wisconsin called H&I Risk Services. And Mike is a super creative guy, was also in strategic coach, and I got to meet him. And he was a very visual guy and artistic, so he could draw out, you know, what he was thinking about and what we were talking about. And he came up with this thing for his company called Change the Game. That's probably not a unique name, but he, what was unique is that he created this whole feeling around change the game. And I was over at his office and he showed that to me. And I was like, that's what I want to do in my industry. I, Strategic Coach has something they call a process they call called industry transformers. So the combination of Mike's creativity and me having this desire to be an industry transformer, meaning we wanted to look, feel, act and perform differently than our industry uh, sort of uh, had constructed us to look, feel, and perform. And once once I kind of got my hands around that or my head around it, and it took a while, um, then we we basically said, hey, we're, we're not here to be just another supplier. We're here to make an impact on the people, production, and profits of the people that we work, the companies that we're working for. And to do that, we have to, as I said, we have to think differently. We have to be different. We have to perform differently. And so that manifested itself in us creating a language of our own. So we created a language for all the industry jargon that everybody else was using, and it became our own. And what was kind of neat, neat about that, and probably the only sort of marketing insight I can provide, is once we got our people bought into that, they felt like they were working for a special organization, like what they were doing really mattered. And they weren't just being pigeonholed into a title. But more than that, it got it got our our clients and our prospects to, to like pause when we would use a word that they weren't familiar with. And, you know, whenever you get someone to pause, as you mentioned in your earlier, you know, you or on that other podcast, you said, I like to get people to pause. When you get people to pause, you have an you have an opportunity to add some value. You know, they're open to, to, to a fill-in of whatever they're pausing for, which is this word. So we created a language around that, and, and then that's what became our differentiator. And, and I knew it was working when the clients that we we're working with started using our terms and not the industry terms. Then I knew I had, we, you know, we had something special. Give me an example that I love this. This is this is truly leadership and communication, which is what the No BS show is all about, because you had to have the leadership to push this vision through. But then you had to communicate by coming up with these terms. Give me an example or two or three of how that happened and then how your team just took to it and it became where your clients were using it, your vendors were using it. Yeah. So I'll talk about, uh, I'll give you a sales example and an, and an ops example. So on the sales side, we had called our people sales reps, right? Everybody calls their people sales reps. Um, we decided that that's not what we were. We, we're not there to sell something. We're there really to, to advise people. So we wanted to up the, up the, up the, uh, the level of the sale, um, like a wealth advisor, you know, it's, it's not a wealth salesperson, it's a wealth advisor. So we changed the name of our sales reps to results advisors because that's what they were there to do. They were there to advise clients and prospects on the results that we could deliver that would help their business. 
we we you know different companies um, have different names, but most call it a sales call, right? I'm going out on a sales call. I'm going to have a sales call. Well, we decided that we needed something that to, to, that really defined our our sales process, and so we went out. We decided that we were going to call that Earth Conversations. So we're not going to go out on a sales call. We're going to go have an Earth conversation with you, and that Earth conversation would help us uh, engage the client in a different way that was really about them and uncovering everything that they wanted to accomplish, but weren't able to accomplish for whatever reason right now. And then we would see if we could bridge that gap. On the op side, we had a pretty large trucking operation and every trucking operation calls the people who schedule the work dispatchers, right? Well, that's not a great name for somebody's job, I don't think. And it sort of marginalizes them. So we took the results advisor thing and just uh, expanded on that in operations. And we've changed our, our dispatch and scheduling team to our results delivery group, because that's what they're for. They're, they're there to deliver the results that we've promised. Uh, so those are a couple of examples. And, you know, people would start calling in and they go, I, can I talk to Bobby and RDG in results delivery group, not Bobby and dispatch. Mm-hmm. That's excellent. So you come up with the terms, which make a lot of sense, and you can hear the passion in your voice. And how did you communicate across the company as you grew and you had the five states and the 150 employees? In general, how did you communicate? And then specifically with this uh, changing of terminology, was I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume there was clarity of the message, but I'm going to also assume there was repetition of the message. So walk through that and how you, you were able to get results. Yeah, so so with the, with, the, with the sales and the client service teams, and the, and the operations teams in the office, we spent a lot more time going over the whys, right? Why we're doing this and practicing and just kind of rolling out a whole system to support it because they were the ones that had to live it every day. With the drivers and everyone else, we we communicated with them uh, uh, by, by, uh, by email and by uh, phone and videos. So we developed... Um, you know, an email to explain it. We developed an earth conversation uh, video so that everyone would understand what that was. They got used to really quick the, you know, calling our, changing the name of our sales reps to results advisors and the dispatch to results delivery group because they were living with those guys every day, those guys and gals. So that was easy. And then we branded the trucks, you know, with the earth conversation. And we had an earth first kind of, earth first was sort of our total uh, macro name for this whole uh, belief system, Dave. Uh-huh. Um, so we branded the the you know the trucks with that, and so they they got it. Excellent, Mike Melatesta. He is CEO of JMMR Holdings. He has given us a lot of great information, and you'll hear more of my interview with Mike Melatesta on part two of the No BS Marketing Show.